of our church and all the notes and scripture will be there. And it will also be on the screen for you this morning. So we'll hand it over to you, Pam. Okay, Luke 7, 1 through 17. When he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to, the, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was also with her. <clears throat> when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't leave. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped, and he said, Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Father God, thank you for, um, thank you for Jesus. Mm. Thank you for sending him to this earth to live among us uh, in our broken world and to restore broken lives. Thank you, God, for what you did for this eternal servant, that you healed him physically uh, and spiritually, and the centurion as well, uh, and for the compassion that you had um, on this widow who lost her son. Lord, thank you that you are a God who cares about people who are in need, people who are grieving, um, Lord, that you understand everything that we feel and our pain, and that you are willing to enter into that while you are here on the earth with us, and you are willing now to enter into that with us. Mm -hmm. So we are giving you thanks today and praying that you would speak to us, uh, that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to listen, and that our hearts would be open to what you have to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pam. So Jesus is a man of power and a man of compassion. Believe in him. We hear essentially from this text this morning. But as we start, I want to go way back to the beginning of the story in Luke, to an episode in the temple. And Luke tells us that Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. So Jesus welcomed into the temple as a newborn child. And this is his announcement. This is the reminder and call to all of God's people that this who is who was promised and has come. The long-awaited Savior, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. And all along the way, into adulthood and now into the thick of his ministry, he's been proving this exclamation, this uh, received promise of old that has come. In his baptism, he takes on repentance for us, proving that he would be a savior. In his temptation, he remains rooted in the word of God, bearing the full weight of every lure away from the truth, giving us an example and a brother who has beaten temptation. And in the reading of the prophets in the synagogue, he claims his purpose. He says it's been fulfilled in their hearing of the word. And then he's gone on healing the sick and the hurting. And in his preaching of the kingdom, of a new way of life for a redeemed people, he's proving that he is who we waited for, calling us, his followers, to his way. And this is been our endeavor in the study of the gospel of Luke to see the real Jesus and then live just like he calls us to live. We want to truly be his followers and do what he says, not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of it also. But as we keep going deeper into this cause in this pursuit of Jesus, we're learning that all of this living has to be firmly tethered to the person doing the proclaiming, fully tethered to our king, that we can't live that way without relationship and a bond with Jesus. And here in two stories that Luke shares, I think we gain some, uh, again, some clarity on who Jesus actually is. And when we see it, when we believe, when we learn to trust him and to be comforted by him, we recognize who he is in this story. And I don't know about you, but I'm due for a dose of trust and comfort today as we just go through normal life, as we come out of a pandemic and there's warnings of a return of the same thing, as we experience war on the news near and far, as we uh, have tension of political difference even in our own communities, we're in need of trust and comfort. We're in need of something better than all of the noise. Friends, Jesus is a man of power and a man of compassion. Not just then, not just in these stories, but now. And that is good news for us. That's what keeps us. That's what gives us something different to live from and for. So we start with the reality that he's a man of power. And we see this, and if we're going to call people to believe or even just believe ourselves, right? We need to know who Jesus is. And coming off of the preaching of the Sermon on the Plain where he speaks very directly about who his followers should be and what they should look like, we see who Jesus is as it is confirmed by an encounter with the Roman centurion. 
The revelation has come to the Gentiles here. And we know historically Judea at this moment was occupied by Rome. So they're under what they felt like uh, oppression over them. And this is to the great consternation of the people of Israel. They were not fans of Roman rule. And this centurion is among the ranks of the Romans. We can't miss that in the story. And here he is as a centurion. He's responsible for the work of probably around a hundred or more men. And he evidently is a pillar in this community in Capernaum. And he even being an occupier is seen with a better light than the average Roman. And Luke tells us that this centurion, this man had a highly valued servant that was sick and near death. Now, that, that statement itself says a lot about who this centurion is because servants in the first century, likely here is a, a foreigner to the Jews, um, somebody from far off that had been a conquered people, now made slaves by the Romans, and they were essentially seen as livestock or tools for the, from the Roman perspective. So much so that some of the writing of the day would say, if you have a tool that is broken, throw it away. And it was meant in the same way for your servant. If your servant no longer serves you, get rid of it. Here we see, rather than just to be used and discarded, this centurion values his servant. So he seems to be a good man. He seems to live by a different ethos than everybody else in the way of Rome. And that truth, just about who he is and the sickness of his servants, somehow merge with what he has heard of Jesus. We, we don't know where he heard about Jesus in his ministry, but we do know that the news about this teacher that could heal the sick has spread broadly enough that even this Roman captain was aware of him. And it seems that he's somewhat convinced that Jesus could do something to remedy the situation of his sick but highly valued servant. So he then sends some of the Jewish elders, those that he probably had relationship with, that he knew, to see if Jesus would come and help this sick servant of his. And in that exchange we see what the elders of Israel were all about at that moment. There's an element of patronage going on here. They presented such a service argument uh, for Jesus' involvement because that was the way that they were accustomed to analyzing their own lives, by externals, by what they could get out of it. And We heard what they said, Jesus, come heal the servant because the centurion is worthy of you. And why was he worthy in their eyes? Because he loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. And this, this is not unlike our day, is it? And I, Truth be told, if you want to build Reservoir Church a building, I will serve you. It's totally cool. I'm not, we're not going to make you any more worthy, but you might feel like it because we're going to love you really well. In that moment, I don't want to keep anybody from buying or building us a building. But we've already learned that like that way of being worthy is not what motivates Jesus because he approaches things different. It's not a value of what the external say of what you can do or what you can provide to him or to others that give you worth. 
But interestingly, Jesus doesn't push back in that moment. He doesn't correct them and be like, who among any of us is worthy? None but God himself, right? He doesn't say that in response to the Jewish elders that are asking him to come and essentially remedy the sickness of this servant. And something else is at play here. And Jesus, Luke tells us, just went with them. He goes along with it. And while this is unfolding, then the centurion seems to realize his place And he sends now instead friends to intercept Jesus. And in their message delivery, we see who Jesus actually is. It's as if we can hear the voice of the centurion say, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So it's, it's fascinating here that he doesn't say he is a man of authority, but a man under authority. Yet he is making a request to a man of authority. He knew his own limitations in this moment, his own unworthiness, and he knew who Christ was. There was enough information for him to realize who this guy that's going about teaching and healing actually is. And he believed that Jesus could truly heal his servant. His faith in that moment had found a resting place in this Messiah that had come, even if he didn't have language to articulate that that's who Jesus was. It's as if he says, just say the word and he will be healed. Just make it so with a command. And Jesus, who already has proven his authority to forgive sin, we've seen that in our study of Luke. That's something that only God can do, yet he's doing it in the synagogue. He has claimed authority as Lord of the Sabbath. He is, as we know from all of Scripture, the actual only cosmic authority. There is no other. And he has the power to heal, the power to save here. And he does it. I think he does it that we would see his power. And we see it elsewhere in the New Testament. Paul will tell us in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. The visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. So he's preeminent. He is uh, before and above all things. Paul will say to the Ephesian church that Jesus is far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. Again, in Colossians, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in him, and you have been filled with him who is the head over every ruler and authority. This is who the centurion is making a request to. And even Jesus himself will tell his followers, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So now go and make disciples, right? And Jesus doesn't 
just comment on the darkness of the world. He deals with it because he has the power to do so. So Friends, Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He is God. There's no other name that matches his as we've sung this morning. There's no other authority. There is no other power than his. Of course we should follow him. It's the only accurate, true one with authority to follow. And just a, a couple of observations from this centurion story. I know you've probably heard like six or seven sermons if you've been a Christian for more than 10 years on this centurion and his faith, right? We see that the centurion had great faith, so much so that Jesus is actually amazed by it, which is unique. That makes it stand apart. But the centurion's faith, if you notice, was not dependent on the healing. He had faith before the healing happened. He knew that Jesus could do it. He wasn't waiting to believe after signs and wonders like so many others in the biblical stories that kept saying to Jesus, well, prove it, prove who you are. He believed Jesus had the power and he trusted him to heal. And that's what his request was. So that's just the first observation. The second is that his faith, as great as it was, was actually not the source of the healing. But the object of his faith was the source of the healing. Jesus was the source of the healing. So there'll be many today that tells you, you have to have great faith if you want to see things work out right. And that may be true on some level. You should have faith. You should trust that Jesus has authority and power. But he heals here not because the man has great faith, but the man has faith because Jesus is the man of power. Whether anything happened differently, I think the centurion will still have believed that Jesus was the man of authority that he's making a request to. I love that Jesus didn't even need to say the word. Did you notice that? Like there's not even, Luke does not note that then Jesus stepped aside and said, be healed, right? When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is a man of power, the one who can be trusted, the one to build your life around, to cling to with all that you've got. So just ask you, like, where do you need to trust Jesus today? Where do you need to trust him to keep his promises of who he says he is and who you are in light of that? Trust him to keep you for all of eternity when it seems so hard to pursue righteousness in the light in him? Do you need to trust him for healing in some circumstance or situation that you're experiencing? Do you need to trust him for provision, for direction? He's a man of power. Trust in Jesus like the centurion. And there's more here, though, than just his power at work because it seems that Jesus cared for the servant too he cared enough to spare him and we see more of this compassion in the second story we see that Jesus is a man of power but he's also a man of compassion I love this second story because here he is traveling to a town called Nain and in this traveling two crowds converge one is led by the giver of life and the other by grieving death Like, do we recognize the imagery that is happening here? And Jesus' disciples and then a large crowd of other people, because they would always follow him, want to see what he was going to do next. 
And they are going through the gate of this town, and they crash into a funeral procession coming out of the gate. And there was a dead man being carried out in his open coffin, and Luke says his mother's only son, and she was a widow. Like, just hearing that and reading that, we can get a sense of the sadness in that sentence, right? A mother's only son, and she is a widow. The end of life, especially one cut short in youth, is traumatic. It is terrible. And we would not wish that on anyone, even our enemies, right? But in the first century, this description is, it it almost equates to a death sentence for the woman herself. Right? Because there's no social structure to care for her. There's no social security. There's no government. Uh, way of anything. There's no covered California to give her insurance in this moment. There's nothing. She has no husband or son to carry on the family name, to provide for her or to protect her or to give her a place to belong. Everything was stripped from her when her son died. She's poor. She has nothing. Add on that maybe dreams of having grandchildren that were dashed in the death of her only son. And a crowd had formed to go through the motions with her. But we have to recognize that she has no one in this moment. One writer says the large crowd posed as an ironic contrast to her actual state. She's alone in this world without a provider or protector. Tomorrow she would awake by herself, brokenhearted, without the sustaining footfall and sounds of her beloved son. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said, don't weep. He had compassion on her. And the root word there, it comes to what it refers to, like what's inside of you, the heart, the liver, the lungs of someone, the viscera of who you are. It describes an emotion that has a physical effect. So Jesus in this moment felt for her. And then he speaks peace tenderly to her can can you just imagine like being in the crowd at that moment and their reaction as you're going out with a funeral procession think about it for a a day before or the setup the whole day so far there have been people that are essentially pale paid to wail for you to sob and to mourn as it's a very public like declaration of this death and then there's this guy that comes with the crowd and he comes to the coffin and he tells this woman not to cry at the death of her son? Like, who does this guy think he is? Right? Then you watch Jesus walking over to the open coffin, touching it. Like, Like even in our day, when there's an open coffin at a memorial service or something, like it is rare when someone touches the body that is in that coffin. And even when they do, like we feel like, oh, there's some grief there. There's some love there. But it's still strange to us because death is strange to us and it's supposed to be. But he walks over to the open coffin and he touches it. I love what Luke says here that the pallbearers stopped. And we just kind of glance over that. But of course they would. Who the heck is touching the open coffin? That's disgusting. They're going to be unclean now for months. Why would they do this? What else could they do then stop? They weren't going to continue the procession. And even his disciples probably in this moment are just going through the, the religious motions of like how 
This is unheard of. Like, you would not do this. You can't now worship in the temple. And yet Jesus then starts talking to the dude that's in the coffin. He says, young man, I tell you, get up. Exclamation point. I love that. I'm so thankful for the CSB. I don't know if your translation has an exclamation point, but I'm glad it is in mine. Because what a moment that is. These huge crowds watching this unknown man that comes and he tells a woman to stop crying with compassion that he feels for her. He's made himself unclean by touching this coffin and speaking to a young man who is dead. He says, I tell you, get up. And what a moment. The disbelief of the stunned crowd, a moment of unsure response from the shaken widow mother. Like, I don't, we don't know if she stopped crying in this moment. Like, what should she do? How would she respond? And then there's this moment of compassion from the creator of the universe. They called all things into being. He's here feeling for her with compassion and healing, bringing a dead man to life. You need to understand, no other religious sage approaches people like this. Prophet Muhammad would not approach a dead person and call them to life. Buddha would not approach a dead person and call them to life. The naturalist actually has nothing to say in response to death. Yet the Lord, Jesus, has compassion. He cares for her. And in his compassion, he reverses death. You thought everything that's happened to this point is trippy from the perspective of the watching crowd. But this guy sits up and he begins to talk. Like, like that. He was dead. They were mourning. Her life was over, even though she would go on living. And her son now is alive. This was not the planned ending, ending of the procession, but it served no purpose now. There was no reason for the crowd to be gathered around. And Jesus gives the son to the mother. I love that. This is a love that sends to save. A compassion that is moved for those that are hurting. And you have to know this is what Jesus does. This is what he always does in ministry. We see it in Matthew 9 that Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowd, he felt compassion, same word, for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. It's like the words of Charles Wesley in the old hymn. He speaks and listen, listening to his voice New life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. And Luke tells us awe comes over everyone, and it did then, and friends, it still should now. What a great king this is that has not only power, but that has compassion, lives forever changed, futures rewritten in this moment because he stopped at a funeral. So where do you need compassion today? You need to know in the same way Jesus sees you and he longs for you. He cares for you. One writer says that there are grieving souls who mourn not only death, but the loss of a relationship. 
There are rejected men, women, and children who feel worthless. There are the betrayed who are so wounded they fear they can never trust again. There are the depressed for whom a single positive thought is an impossibility. The hurts and failures of this world are burdens that cannot be borne by anyone except Jesus. But he hears the pain of every voice and his heart goes out to us, his children, with deep compassion. Are you afflicted and hurting? Jesus hurts with you. And this is always who he is. He is the one who will set aside his power and take on the cross in compassion for us to give us salvation, good news to the poor, liberty for the captives. This had been the widow's only son, but Jesus is the only son who in death will grant us forgiveness, grant us righteousness and welcome us into the presence of God without shame. The truth is, I believe we will meet the centurion and the widow one day. And I think we're likely to meet the servant and the young man as well. Because they had been seen and saved by the man of power and compassion. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Luke 7, 1 through 17 and seeing Jesus as the man of power and the man of compassion? First, friends, just let the power humble you. Like the centurion when he says, I am unworthy. Do not rely on your works, your love of nation and building of the synagogue, but on the authority in the one of whom you believe. He is the one who created all things and he is before and above all things at this very moment. By the word of his power, he is holding all things together. Let that humble you. Let that give you awe. Let his compassion leave you in that awe. Worship like those that were shocked in this moment by the resurrection of this young man as they shouted that God has visited his people today. And know that none are too far from the grace and compassion of Jesus. Because we may feel that things look dead, but Jesus has another plan in mind. And if you have received that compassion of Christ, know that he loves you and cares for you always. Nothing can change his compassion for you. Nothing will remove that compassion. And then just live like him. See those in need of compassion and cry with them. Serve them. Be their family when they have none. Bring them to Jesus so that the report about him will go everywhere, as Luke says after this story. Jesus is a man of power and a man of compassion. Believe in him and live like you do. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your compassion towards us the reception of your grace and power over death. Give us eyes to see it, hearts to accept it, and lives that are lived from it. Make us compassionate like you for your glory and for our good. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.